listening to Brunch with me, Noreen Mayer, on this Thursday morning. So let's turn to our next guest and topic of today. In the next 20 minutes or so, we're turning to the music scene in mainland China. And in particular, we're talking about rock music. And to chat about this, I'm really delighted to be chatting with Andrew Field, who's a professor of Chinese history, who specializes in the history of music and dance scenes in urban China. And Professor Field is based in Shanghai, where he teaches at the Duke Kunshan University. And he's recently written a book on this called Rocking China, Music Scenes in Beijing and Beyond. Welcome to the program, Professor Field, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Noreen. It's uh, great to, to, to welcome you on the program. Now, when we think about music and China, perhaps rock music may not sort of be the first style that comes to mind. Um, can you give us a bit of a background to the history of rock music in China? Sure. Well, um, <clears throat> rock music in China, in mainland China, really started up um, in the 1980s. So... As anybody who follows the history of rock and roll knows, rock and roll music goes back to the 1950s in the USA. And then it became popular in other parts of the world, especially in the UK in the 1960s. And on rock and roll bands as well during the 1960s. Um, but in mainland China, because of the Cultural Revolution, um, Rock had a belated entrance into Chinese society. So it wasn't until the reform era in the 1980s that uh, mainland Chinese people started to listen to rock music and the first rock bands were um, formed in mainland China. And Beijing was really the center of that. And the most famous rock and roll musician from that time period is Cui Jian who still to this day retains the title of China's rock godfather. <laughs> That's right. And who sort of brought rock music to mainland China then? Well, I'd say it was a combination. Uh, as China was beginning to open up to the world after the Cultural Revolution, um, so in the 1980s, um, you start to see uh, foreigners coming to China, especially to Beijing, a lot of journalists and diplomats and students and businessmen, business people. Um, and also, of course, um, uh, people, you know, other people of Chinese heritage and, and people from other parts of Asia, especially uh, coming to China in the 1980s and 1990s as the economy began to open up. Uh, and they're bringing their culture into China. Um, and so rock and roll music was one of the uh, cultural trends that started up in uh, big cities in China, but especially in Beijing. I'd say, you know, there was very, uh, very few other places in China where rock and roll music could be heard. So mm -hmm. the first rock and roll bands that started up in, in Beijing were foreigners. Um, but it soon, uh, the music uh, quickly caught on to the local Chinese. And the most, uh, of course, uh, important case of that is Cui Jian, who started to learn to play rock and roll music in the 1980s, influenced by foreigners and by um, the the sounds, the music that was coming into China at that time through cassette tapes, not so much through radio, although I think uh, maybe shortwave radio, but mostly through cassette tapes that were being 
shared and distributed by foreigners and by people coming into China from the outside. Yeah, and that's um, a... so that's how it all got started. Okay, and that's sort of the the beauty and and sort of the universal nature of music. You know, it may be a sort of different genre, different style, but it, I mean, what was the reception of it like? I mean, from locals, what did they make of this uh, sort of uh, uh, this noisy version of of you know uh, of this uh, genre of music? Well, I think in the nineteen eighties, Chinese people were really ready for. Uh, new sounds yes. and uh, new forms of culture that were coming in from the rest of the world, and it was a very exciting time period in China. Um, so I think there was a lot of reception, a lot of good reception of this kind of new music, which was so different from uh, both the Chinese revolutionary music that they were used to hearing in mainland China, um, but also the uh, the pop music that was coming from places like Hong Kong and Taiwan, like Deng Lijun is. Teresa Tang is the great example of yes. of Chinese style pop music that was flowing back into China, but that was very sweet and very melodic, uh, love songs and so on. Um, but rock and roll was a little bit more rebellious, a little bit more in your face, and I think it appealed to young people. It, it was very danceable. You know, the first band that came into China from the West was Wham, <laughs> which. Uh, was very popular in the 1980s. Probably young people don't know this band, but uh, they might have heard the name George Michael, who was the great, uh, incredible solo singer that came out of the band Wham and had a long solo career after that. But they, they were the first band to come to China in 1985, wow. which is quite amazing. And they, they performed at the uh, Workers' Stadium in Beijing. And it was a huge success. Um, there were thousands of Chinese people attending, and you can you can see footage of them dancing and having a great time. And I think Tsui Jian might have been in that audience as well. <laughs> and he was very influenced by this. And uh, a year later, he was rocking the Workers' Stadium with his own music. Um, so that was really the beginning of the rock and roll revolution in China. And then it really started to take off with other bands like Tang Chao or the Tang Dynasty. Uh, that was one band that came out in the late 1980s. Um, and then there was Black uh, Black Panther, Heibao, um, and other bands. Cobra, which was an all-female rock band, Chinese rock band. Uh, and then in the 1990s, um, all of this morphed into um, a punk movement. There was a punk movement in Beijing. Um, and then there was post-punk and more genres of music. And that's because Chinese people started to listen to more styles of music, first with these cut CDs or daco CDs that were coming in as corporate trash into mainland China and being sold on a great market. And then, of course, in the 2000s, there was the Internet explosion and you had digital music. And all of a sudden, Chinese people could access millions of songs of all sorts of genres and all sorts of styles of music. Um, so that's when the indie rock revolution happened, and that's what I really focus on in my book. Yes. So what sort of piqued your interest in this area? I, I know you're interested in Chinese culture and, and, and music, um, but what sort of piqued your interest in, in rock music in particular? Well, my interest in Chinese rock goes back to the early 1990s. I remember a friend introduced me to Cui Jian, and uh, I remember listening to his album, Iwu Soyo, or mm -hmm. I Have Nothing, yes. uh, which is his anthem. That's his most, I guess, recognizable song. 
Um, and I just remember being blown away by how powerful the music was and how fun it was. And I bought some of his other albums. Um, and I listened to a few other bands like uh, Hei Bao and Tang Chao a little bit. But I never really took a strong interest in Chinese uh, rock scenes because there really weren't any when I was living in China in the 1990s. There was very little in the way of rock music scenes like there weren't any dedicated rock clubs uh when i was there in the mid 1990s uh living in china but by the 2000s when i came back to live in beijing in 2006 2007 i was living there and there were uh several rock clubs that were dedicated to chinese indie rock bands um and the scene had become very exciting there were literally hundreds of rock bands just in Beijing alone that were um, trying to get on these stages of these different rock clubs and trying to make a name for themselves. Uh, so it seemed like a really exciting scene and there was a lot of creativity and originality in the music scene. So I just kind of latched onto it and I started to go to the clubs and then I started to uh, photograph and film the bands in action, which was easy to do because nobody would Nobody stopped you from filming or photographing the bands. I could even get on stage. Even like, on stage? Not in the middle of the stage, but the side of the stage. You know, but, um, but people didn't bother me. I, I could document the scene uh, without anybody getting in my face about it, which is pretty amazing. It's probably, you know, hard to imagine that happening in the U.S. or a lot of other places. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, Professor Field, this book has really been uh, decades of 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 work in the making. Um, your your latest book, "Rocking China: The Music Scenes in Beijing and and Beyond." Tell us a little bit more uh, um, what it's about. What you decided to include in it? What's the structure of it? And and sort of what parts did you not really include? All right. To use some fancy terms, there's a synchronic part section of the book and a diachronic section, which basically means the first section of the book really focuses on a moment in the history of indie rock in Beijing. And that was the year 2007, because that was the year that I was there. I was, I spent six months living in Beijing. I spent a lot of time in the rock clubs and going to concerts and festivals. And so my richest material comes from that period, but that happens to coincide with what I call the golden age of indie rock music in China. Um, that's when Beijing was the indisputed center of rock and roll in China. All the best bands in China were coming to Beijing, playing on the stages. Beijing had hands down the best rock clubs. It had um, record labels that were producing the rock bands, all the best rock musicians, um, in China were gathered in Beijing or were going there regularly to uh, perform. Um, so it was really a golden age for Beijing rock and roll, and I'd say for indie rock in China. Um, and so I focus a lot of my attention on that time period because that's the period that I documented most richly. Um, and then the diachronic aspect of the book is later in the later chapters, I... Um, I looked at what happened to rock and roll scenes in Beijing and in other cities, Shanghai, for example, um, over the next 15 years. Um, and so uh, in that section of the book, I take a more long-term uh, view looking at the trends. And, and I asked the question, why 
why did Beijing kind of fall off of its uh, pedestal as the center of rock and roll in China? Because because really nobody would consider Beijing to be China's rock and roll center today, uh, as it was 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, and then the other question, the other side of that question is why did other cities become um, rock and roll centers of their own? And why did rock and roll become so much more distributed around China such that nowadays there are rock rock clubs and dedicated rock bands and promoters and everything in just about any major city in China. And that's a huge change from 15, 20 years ago. Um, so those are the questions that I try to answer in the second part of the book. Yeah. And uh, I'm not going to reveal all my answers because I want people to, <laughs> to read, read the, the book. book yes. <laughs> Um, yeah. Well, can you sort of give us an idea of what the sort of uh, pub band scene was like in Beijing, maybe 15 years ago? You know, what what was it like? Was it really sort of thriving? Were there lots of performances and, and was the local reception, um, was it very popular amongst the locals? It, it was definitely thriving. It was still very much an underground scene. So it was kind of a word of mouth thing. You had to know where the clubs were located. Some of them were in the middle of the city, like in the Gulo or Drum Tower area, um, just north of the Forbidden City. Um, and some were in the western part of the city where the universities are located. There was the Club D22 located just across from Tsinghua University and just down the road from Peking University, uh, the two top universities in China. Um, and this is probably the most uh, celebrated experimental rock club during that time and right next to it was club 13 which more catered to the metal scene which i did i don't really focus on in the in the book the metal scene is kind of its own scene <laughs> that, um, that, that'll be for your next book maybe maybe but uh, <laughs> you know I'm, i've never been much of a metal metal head a headbanger i'm more of an indie rock guy so i'll let others do the metal scene but um so there was D22, Club 13 in the uh, Western District. In the Eastern District, the Chaoyan District, there were a couple of clubs. There, uh, notably, there was a club called Dos Colegas, uh, which was run by two rock musicians. And that was really a, a great kind of grassroots rock and roll club. Uh, I saw a lot of great performances there. Um, so there was uh, um, so there was Mao Live House in the in the uh, Drum Tower area, D twenty two in the west, Dos Caligas in the east, and in the center of the city there was also a club called Yugong Yishan, which is a very famous Chinese proverb about a stupid old man moving a mountain, which Mao Zedong loved this uh, this proverb. Um, so so there was that club. Um, so those four clubs formed really the, the four pillars of the indie rock scene in Beijing. And so even though it was kind of an underground word of mouth scene, if you knew about it, it was an amazing scene. Like I said, there were, you could see literally hundreds of bands performing in different concerts, festivals, uh, in these clubs. And there were also outdoor festivals in Beijing as well. There was the MIDI festival, there was the uh, Modern Sky Festival had just started. And there was also the Be Beijing Pop Festival where I saw, among other bands, uh, we saw Nine Inch Nails. We saw Public Enemy um, performing alongside Cui Jian and other Chinese rock and roll acts. 
So that was an amazing, um, an amazing time for the city of Beijing. It really felt that Beijing was opening up and becoming this international city at that time. Uh, but things changed after that. And uh, Beijing did not uh, live up to its promise of being the rock and roll epicenter of China for, you know, a, a few years later, uh, things really started to uh, close down. A lot of those clubs shut down and Beijing kind of lost its status as China's rock center. What sort of led to that? Yeah, what sort of led to the demise? Why did Well, it, it's to easy down? to blame the government and you know, it's easy to blame the government and say, oh, there was more, um, you know, there, there, uh, there was, and, and it's true that the government was paying more attention to the rock and roll scene and certain aspects of that scene that they thought were unhealthy. Um, but that was just one factor. I, I would say another big factor was that the um, rising cost of real estate in the middle of the city really um, pushed a lot of clubs out out of that part of the city. Um, and there were other factors as well. You know, it's, uh, again, uh, having to do with real estate and the, just the cost of living. It became harder and harder for these uh, young rock musicians to live in Beijing because the cost of living was so high. In fact, a lot of the rock musicians that I knew and befriended during that time period lived out in Tongzhou, which is like a satellite city of Beijing. And it takes at least an hour to get into Beijing from Tongzhou. Um, and so the, the just the cost of living drove a lot of young creative people out of the city, um, which is not too dissimilar to other big cities around the world that are undergoing kind of gentrification, like New York City, for example. Uh, it just becomes harder and harder for creative people to live in these big cities when the cost of living is rising so rapidly. Um, but at the same time, uh, there was just less incentive for people from other provinces and other places in China to go to Beijing because rock music scenes and, and music scenes in general were rising in their own home provinces and in their own home cities. And so, uh, that, so there was a less of a need to travel all the way to Beijing because it was just available where they were. Exactly. So... Um, they could just they could be the stars of their own city of their own home city, yeah. um, which was much more attractive to a lot of musicians than going to Beijing and being a small fish in a big pond. Sure, because um, I'm not so familiar with the sort of uh, music festival scene in in the mainland. Um, I was researching and I came across you know the the MIDI Rock Festival, and then there was a a government sponsored MIDI Rock Festival in 2011. What's that, and and how is it different to the regular MIDI Rock Festival? And it seems like if the government sponsored it, they're really throwing their weight behind and and supporting rock music uh, in in the mainland. Yeah, well, that is true, and you know there, that's kind of one of the I don't know if it's an irony <laughs> paradox, but you know the local governments in China have been very supportive of uh, these music scenes. Um, and they've, uh, ever since I started documenting, uh, rock music scenes in, in China 15, 20 years ago, um, they've been supporting these scenes and they've been supporting, um, local festivals because it, because it brings money, it brings revenue in and it attracts tourism and, um, it, it has a lot of beneficial effects. Uh, so 
outside of Beijing, Beijing is kind of the special case because it's the political capital. But outside of Beijing, you'll find that local governments in China are very supportive of music festivals uh, like MIDI, um, like the Strawberry Music Festival, yes. um, which also came out of, I think, the Modern Sky. It's also sponsored, uh, uh, organized by Modern Sky, which is the big uh, independent re record label in China. Um, and and so it, it is a bit uh, odd uh, to think about, but there is a lot of local support for uh, music festivals. Now, whether or not they support the kind of the ideology of the rock musicians is another another question entirely. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about sort of the history and, and what's happening now. Um, what's your sort of assessment of the future of rock music uh, in the mainland? Will it continue to thrive or are people sort of finding different alternative and, and rock music is, is just going to be a, a genre of the past? Well, I think rock music will always have a special place in... Um, in the musical world, uh, there's just something, there's something kind of unique about rock music, about the combination of electric guitars, drums, and bass, and this this hard driving sound, which is rooted in blues. It's rooted in in older styles of music. Um, there's just something irreplaceable about it, and I think young people, both young men and women. Um, all, all, all genders, I suppose, ha just there's an, an innate interest in uh, making noise with, with a guitar, yes. you know, plugging Such a guitar an into an amp and, yes. and seeing what happens and, and fooling around with different pedals. And, you know, you can just see young musicians getting fascinated with just the sound, the kind of sound that they can produce and the volume of the music. <laughs> and it's also kind of easy, relatively speaking. It's certainly easier to become a rock musician than to become a jazz musician. You know, the bar is much higher for jazz um, as it is for classical music and, you know, musical styles where you need a tremendous amount of training um, to, to achieve, you know, to, to achieve um, your results. But with rock music, you know, you learn to play three chords. You can, be, you can form a rock and roll band. Now, of course, there's a lot more to it than that. But I think the bar is lower, uh, so that also attracts people into the rock scene. Um, and there are other factors as well. So I don't think rock and roll, I don't think rock music is going to go away as the genre. Um, it may not be the most popular genre of music. And there are other uh, genres of music that are competing uh, in the musical sphere, like rap music is also quite popular now in China and uh, electronic music and other styles. Um, but I think rock music will always have a place, um, in, especially in the youth culture of China, as it does all over the world. So rock is not going away. That's good to hear. And uh, Professor Field, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed chatting with you, and I learned a lot from you, as I'm sure our listeners did as well. Um, remind our listeners once again, how can we find out more about you and your work? Have you got a website? And where can we uh, get your book, uh, Rocking China, Music Scenes in Beijing and Beyond? Yeah, so um, I do have a website. It's called shanghaisojourns.net. So you can look me up on that website. Um, 
and I have a lot of information about my various research projects, including my research on the rock music scenes of China. Um, the book is available on Amazon. It's, you can also contact the publisher, Earnshaw Books. So I think if you go to uh, the publisher's website, earnshawbooks.net, uh, you will be able to uh, access uh, or order a copy of the book. The book is available in hard copy or in a Kindle version. And uh, for those of you who um, who do acquire the book and read it, um, please uh, please write a kindly review of the book on Amazon or on Goodreads or whatever website you you like to post your reviews on, because that will uh, really help. Uh, to the book to gain more exposure around the world. And I do think that the rock music scene in China deserves a lot more exposure and a lot more interest uh, than it has gotten. So I'm hoping that this book will contribute to that. Excellent. And thank you very much indeed to Andrew Field, who's a professor of Chinese history, who specializes in the history of music and dance scenes in urban China. And Professor Field is based in Shanghai at the moment, where he teaches at the Duke Kunshan University. And of course, he's recently written a book called Rocking China, Music Scenes in Beijing and Beyond. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Noreen.